Hello, knowledge seekers. In this episode of 20 Minute Books, we delve into the captivating insights of Through the Language Glass by Guy Deutscher. This compelling work unveils the profound influence language has on our cultural perception. Deutscher masterfully illustrates how the languages we speak shape our views of space, gender, and color, ultimately altering our understanding of reality. Guy Deutscher, the mind behind this enlightening book, is a distinguished linguist and honorary research fellow at the University of Manchester. With his expansive research and academic contributions, he possesses a deep understanding of the nuances of language, which he shares with readers in a way that is both accessible and profound. As the author of The Unfolding of Language, Deutscher is no stranger to exploring the evolution and implications of human speech. Through the Language Glass is an essential read for anyone fascinated by the intersection of language, thought, and culture. It's an enlightening journey for those curious about cognitive science and how our brains process the world around us. Linguistic students will find the book to be a treasure trove of insights, challenging preconceptions, and inviting deeper exploration into the subject. Join us as we explore how language not only communicates our thoughts, but also shapes the very way we think. Through the Language Glass, Why the World Looks Different in Other Languages Introduction A Spectrum of Hues Concealed in Ancient Tongues Unraveling the Color Conundrum in Language Imagine finding yourself in a world where the sky isn't blue, where the grass isn't green, and where honey isn't yellow. Not because these things were of different colors, but because the language of the people describing them lacked the very words for these colors. This is the reality we encounter when peering into the ancient vernaculars of Homer and other illustrious scribes. How can it be that the vibrant rainbow that humans can see wasn't mirrored in the words of their languages? This linguistic puzzle forms the core of our exploration into the relationship between language, perception, and culture. Let's consider for a moment the word blue. It's ubiquitous now, but in ancient Greek there was no equivalent. The sea and the sky were often described as wine-dark or simply ignored in terms of color altogether. The question provoked by this absence is as intriguing as it is complex. Does the lack of a term for blue indicate that the ancient Greeks saw the world differently? Can the very structure of language impinge on our sensory experiences? Contemplate the error of equating linguistic gaps with perceptual blindness? To assume that because a society doesn't have a word for a concept they can't understand or see it is to tread on thin ice. The evolution of language offers a window into this phenomenon, where the word for red is almost universally older than the word for yellow. It appears that priorities in naming colors are not arbitrary, but follow a curious order, suggesting that our language can give us a meaningful, though not definitive, map of human focus and attention a bridge by any other name, dissecting cultural metaphors. Now, let's dive into the waters of cultural metaphor, where our journey takes us to the banks of how different languages describe a simple structure, a bridge. You might wonder, could the genders of nouns in languages like Spanish and German 
really affect the way people think about an inanimate object? It seems far-fetched, but our investigation into these linguistic waters may yield some unexpected findings. Take the German die Brücke, a feminine noun, and the Spanish el puente, a masculine noun. Surprisingly, when asked to describe a bridge, Germans and Spaniards sail in different directions. Germans tend to use words like beautiful, elegant, and peaceful, while Spaniards might opt for strong, towering, and sturdy. It's as if the grammatical gender of the noun has spilled over into the cultural perception of the object it represents. This revelation beckons a closer look, and it leaves us pondering just how deeply the language we speak shapes the way we view the world around us. From lexical gaps in color vocabulary to gendered descriptions of architecture, we're reminded that our words do much more than meet the ear. They help construct the vast, multi-dimensional worlds we live in. With each utterance, we paint a picture not only of our culture, but of our very cognition, our sense of space, and our place in the grand tapestry of human experience. Part 1. The curious case of the colorblind poets of antiquity delve into the pages of Homer's epics, and one might expect a kaleidoscope of colors befitting the grand tales of gods and heroes. Yet the canvas of his world seems oddly muted. Words that embody the essence of blue are conspicuously absent, pointing to a fascinating aspect of language where it serves as a mirror to the culture it sprouts from. This dichotomy between the vibrant hues we know and the grayscale vocabulary of the ancients invites us to consider. How does the richness of one's language color their perception of the universe? A gripping argument by William Ewart Gladstone, the notable English Prime Minister and scholar, dives into this enigma. Poring over the Iliad and the Odyssey, he posited that the Greeks' vision of their surroundings was tinted not with the vividness of a painter's palette, but with the subdued tones akin to an old photograph. In the 19th century manuscript Studies on Homer and the Homeric Age, Gladstone unveiled his thoughts, suggesting that when Homer spoke of the wine-dark sea or green honey, he wasn't merely flexing his creative muscles. Instead, the language may well reflect a more primal understanding of color limited to the starkness of light and dark. Gladstone's theory draws from the stark contrasts in Homer's lexicon, the dense recurrence of black and the measly mention of yellow, a stark difference in tally hinting at the importance afforded to each. This offers up a notion that perhaps the Greeks' perception of colour was awaiting its renaissance, their eyes not yet schooled in the full spectrum our world had to offer. Could the slow evolution of hues in their material culture hold the key to this linguistic minimalism? The shades of blue decorating our lives through eyes, fabrics and flora were a rarity among the Greeks, as natural dyes and pigments were but nascent art forms. This scarce presence in their environment may have kept blue from finding its way into their spoken words. It would seem that a society's visual diet shapes its linguistic repertoire. If blue is but a whisper in a world of objects, perhaps it shall remain mute in the orchestra of speech. Part 2. Language, Perception, and the Evolution of Color, Vocabulary Language, an architect of human history, etching the evolution of our species into the very words we speak. In the late 19th century, 
Lazarus Geiger joined the ranks of those who sought to decipher the annals of human development through this linguistic lens. His investigations led him to an astounding proposition. The maturation of humankind's very perception of color left its trace in the timelines of global dialects. Geiger's breakthrough turned a spotlight on the odd treatment of colors in ancient texts. Piercing through the isolation of Greek antiquity and striking at a universal pattern. His findings sketched a picture where languages from the Indian Vedas to the Hebrew Bible all sang this peculiar chorus. Colors emerged in literature following a shared sequence. Imagine the unfolding narrative a world first split into the binaries of darkness and light, followed by the birth of red, the oldest child of hues, as civilizations advanced after which yellow entered the scene, soon accompanied by green, until the family of colors blossomed to include blue and violet in the fullness of time. Geiger saw this shared progression not as an arbitrary naming convention, but as a potential roadmap to sensory development, and his theory ignited imaginations and debates. Yet Geiger's untimely demise left others to navigate the trail he blazed. Researchers of the time, including Hugo Magnus, dallied with the Lamarckian notion of inherited sensory enhancements, believing that our ancestors improved their color perception over generations. But this was muddied water, a herring dyed red by misconceptions. The culturalists, critics of Magnus's anatomical emphasis, protested. They rejected the idea that physiological changes were at play, suggesting instead that color perception was not merely a biological affair. The analogy is clear. As the language of wine doesn't precisely capture its hue, nor does ancient wording unfailingly reveal the colors seen by its speakers. Perhaps the strongest testament to this is the ancient Mycenaeans' veneration of lapis lazuli. Were their eyes drawn to the same radiant blue we adore, even as their language had yet to find a word for it? Such discoveries urge us to consider a broader perspective that the cultivation of color terms in human language may resonate more with cultural significance and less with the evolution of our optical capabilities. Part 3. The Intricate Tapestry of Color in Language and Culture The foundational stone of the culturalists' argument was laid not through introspection or dusty texts, but rather through boots-on-the-ground anthropology. At the dawn of the 20th century, W.H.R. Rivers ventured to the remote shores of Murray Island, intent on dispelling the myth that language constraints equate to color blindness. Murray Island, a vibrant speck in the Great Barrier Reef, became a living laboratory for testing the hypothesis. The islanders adorned their speech with a simpler spectrum of color terms than many others, with words like mamamamam, painting broad strokes over reds, pinks, and browns alike. But when faced with the Holmgren wool test, a sea of fibers in varying shades, the islanders weaved their selections with precision, plucking the matching colors as confidently as any lexically rich outsider. This clarity of vision, despite linguistic limitations, offered a counterpoint to prior misconceptions. It's akin to introducing the Russian distinction between Sini and Goluboy to an English speaker whose lexicon blankets them both under blue. 
while the wavelengths dividing navy from sky blue are as clear as those separating any two distinct colours, the English culture has knit them under a singular umbrella term. Similar to the Russians baffled by English blues, Murray Islanders may see blue through their black or green. Not because the azure sky and the verdant leaves are one, but because their language casts a wider net over the hues that dance before their eyes. Just as the English can discern the subtleties between the deep of the ocean and the lightness of the sky, so too can the islanders see the myriad shades without assigning them individual names. In this twist of culture and vocabulary, we find that the words we use to describe our world are not always a true reflection of our perceptual capabilities. Our colour terms are not the rigid confines of our visual reality, but rather a testament to our cultural tapestry a patchwork of distinctions and nuances defined by the threads of history and tradition. Part 4. Unveiling the Tapestry of Color Terms Nature's Handshake with Culture The riddle of color nomenclature, muddled by cultural and natural influences, was revived with the groundbreaking work of Brent Berlin and Paul Kay. In their 1969 opus, Basic Color Terms, Their Universality and Evolution, the duo planted a flag where culture meets nature in the realm of linguistic hues. They cast a light that pierced through the fog left by culturalists and nativists, proving that the language of color is a dance of both environmental prompts and cultural steps. Red. The chromatic pioneer in the world's languages. Why? The answer lies twofold. Nature has imbued red with a sense of urgency the crimson call of spilled blood, warning of peril, the blush of a fertile creature heralding a time for continuity. It is both alarm and invitation, woven into the primal fabric of life. To name red is to navigate survival, to filter essential cues from the sprawling spectrum of sight. Concurrently, culture takes the baton and continues the relay. The realms of art and industry have found red among the simplest dyes to produce, saturating fabrics with the frequency of apples in an orchard. What is commonplace seeps into language, etching a term for red deeply into the consciousness of people who may rarely utter blue. But if nature gives us raw canvases and culture hands us brushes, how exactly does this lead to diversity in colour verbiage across civilizations? The phenomenon curls around perception. Not all colors flaunt the hard edges of a silhouette. Where one society might perceive a continuum and lump together various shades of a color category, another might segregate them into distinct terms. The differentiation of yellow, light green, and light blue encapsulates this variance. Some cultures blend them as simply non-red, while others define each with its own moniker. And as these cultural categorizations cascade down generations, they reveal that legacy can indeed be woven of cultural threads, that what we acquire in norms and names we pass on. Berlin and Kay's revelation is a testament. It paints our understanding of color not with one brush of biology nor another of culture, but with a palette where each shade blends into the next, a beautiful amalgam of nature's patterns and humanity's rich interpretations. Part 5. The Dance of Grammar and Society How Language Complexity Mirrors Cultural Intricacies 
The intricacy of a society's dance is often choreographed by its language, with grammar executing the complex steps. This relationship goes beyond the palette of colors our words can paint. It delves into the very structure of how we express our thoughts. Not all dances are equally elaborate, and similarly, languages vary in complexity, even though each one is a marvel in its own right. But how does one measure the complexity of a language's grammar, and what does it reveal about the culture cradling it? Contrasting the web of tenses in verbs or the multitude of vowel sounds across languages may not yield a clear measure of complexity, yet it is possible to hone in on specific grammatical features. Consider the breadth of tense distinctions marked on verbs. Such comparisons shine a light on the way language complexity can echo the contours of societal makeup. Linguists like Revere Perkins observed a fascinating correlation. The grander the society, the simpler the word formation tends to be. Why? Picture a bustling metropolis, a melting pot of strangers, where communication demands clarity without shared backstory. Here, you cannot merely gesture or point with words like there without furnishing enough context for an outsider to grasp the narrative. This linguistic point and explained dynamic is more straightforward in communities rich in shared experiences. Imagine the subtle dance of context in a close-knit tribe. A simple phrase resounds with unspoken meaning understood by all. In such environments, the pointing, in language, the directional cues embedded in words for people, places, and times, naturally intertwines into complex morphological endings. The communal tapestry allows for a rich mosaic of verbal expression. On the other hand, where languages and dialects cascade across the social spectrum, encountering a pantheon of accents and regional tweaks, simplicity becomes a lingua franca. A similar theme plays out in modern times with globlish, a distilled form of English that traverses the globe, far less ornate than the poetic tapestry of Shakespeare's age. As we behold the dance of grammatical structures, we witness a reflection of cultural sophistication, a linguistic performance shaped by the need to communicate within and without our circles. Language and culture are partners in this intricate ballet. Each step of syntax and morphology, a mirror of human society's ever-evolving landscape. Part 6. How the Linguistic Mold Shapes Our Cognitive Clay In the creative explosion of the 1930s, Edward Sapir and Benjamin Lee Horf crafted a theory as compelling as it was controversial, that the language we speak is the architect of our reality. Dubbed Linguistic Relativity by Sapir, it proposed a world where words construct the horizons of our thought, a notion that initially sparked enthusiasm, but eventually succumbed to allegations of pseudoscience, leading to a widespread retreat from the idea that language wields power over thought. Yet, documentation of the Nootka language by Sapir himself inadvertently injected new life into the debate. The Nootka, with their unique verb to stone, replacing a generic to fall, seemed to suggest that distinct grammatical structures could indeed point to distinct ways of perceiving the world, much like the English verb to rain, which has no direct equivalent in Hebrew. But does possessing different linguistic tools truly refract the experience of reality through a wholly different prism? Perhaps not in totality, 
but language does nudge us toward articulating specific aspects of our experiences. As the linguist Roman Jacobson observed, summarizing Franz Boas, it's not about what languages can express, it's about what they require us to express. Every language has the capacity for broad expression, but each makes unique demands on its speakers. French and German prod their users to reveal gender with every noun, imbuing sentences with a male or female essence that isn't necessary in English. In such subtle ways, the tongue we wield can lead our thoughts down different paths, not by barricading conceptual realms, but by lighting up frequent signposts. When speaking French, the silhouette of le voisin or la voisine emerges vividly in the listener's mind, man or woman, while the English neighbor allows the figure to remain obscured, a genderless shadow. While not dictating what we can think, our native languages do choreograph what we typically call to mind, influencing the habitual patterns of our thoughts with the gentle but persistent guidance of linguistic necessity. Part 7. The Subtle Sway of Grammatical Gender Over Our Minds Here's a conundrum to mull over. What is it about the Spanish language that makes an apple by the name of Patricia more memorable than one dubbed Patrick? Peel back the layers of this linguistic mystery, and you'll find that it's all about gender, grammatical gender to be precise, and its surprising influence on cognition. In languages where nouns are assigned a gender, such as in German and Spanish, these grammatical classifications can shape the way objects are perceived and described. Toshi Konishi's research in the 1990s offered a glimpse into this phenomenon. When speakers of gendered languages were tasked with characterizing nouns, their descriptions swayed toward attributes typically associated with the noun's gender. Bridge, or die Brücke, becomes enveloped in feminine descriptors in German, while El Puente in Spanish evokes a masculine outline. A bridge, as understood by German speakers, beautiful, fragile, perhaps even elegant, contrasts starkly with the Spanish interpretation, grand, formidable, and sturdy. This divergence stems from the bridge being linguistically feminine in German and masculine in Spanish, with no intrinsic rationale for the gender attributed to it. Whether a German girl is linguistically neuter or water is feminine in Russian, but masculinity emerges upon the plunge of a teabag. The assigned genders steer the mental ship. The power of these grammatical genders extends beyond mere adjectives. They also grasp at our memory. An experiment by Lara Boroditsky and Lauren Schmidt tested this theory, revealing that the gender congruence between names and objects, as dictated by language, aids recall. La manzana cradles in its feminine form the name Patricia comfortably in the memory of a Spanish speaker, while the masculine form of El Puente prefers to be associated with a Claudio rather than a Claudia. It's not immediately obvious why our minds hitch a ride on these grammatical constructs. There's no inherent quality in an apple or a bridge that aligns it with femininity or masculinity. Yet this linguistic feature subtly colours our inner world, silently dictating the way we think, describe and remember bits of our reality. Welcome to the wondrous world of words, where a simple article or ending can unlock a dimension, where grammatical gender mingles with thought, memory, and perception. Part 8. Navigating the World. Language's Compass on our Perception of Space. 
Picture a world where left and right are directions as foreign as a land without a name, a place where the compass of language does not pivot on the axis of personal orientation. This is the reality for speakers of the Gugu Yamithya language in Australia, whose unique linguistic approach to space nudges us to reconsider what we perceive as universal cognitive coordinates. The commonality of egocentric directions in many languages worldwide once led to the assumption that using left and right was a human default. However, the Gugu Yamithir people trace their spatial relationships along the cardinal directions of north, south, east, and west. In their linguistic landscape, one doesn't reach into the left of the freezer for fish, but delves into the northeast corner of it. Contrast this with our typical encounter with space, guided as it is by our bodily orientation, delineated by what's ahead, behind, or beside us. Our everyday journeys are mapped not on the world's grand grid, but on the transient territories defined by our person. The Gugu Yamithir orientation, by contrast, requires a continuous awareness and orientation to cardinal directions. Their choice of locational terms reveals a tether to a larger spatial understanding, one that's in constant dialogue with the Earth's geography. This compelling difference in spatial language offers a window into diversified realities. Consider an experiment. Present a series of images that pivot around a central object from a person to a tree, changing the cardinal direction each time. An English speaker might consistently place the tree to a person's left, maintaining the spatial relationship in bodily terms. Yet for a Gugu Yamithir speaker, the tree would be sketched not to a personal left or right, but perhaps to the person's south, remapping the scene in adherence to the Earth's immutable bearings. The linguistic devices at our disposal do not merely describe the world. They shape the cognitive paths we walk through it. For a Gugu Yamithir speaker, every point in space is part of an endless compass rose, each conversation a delicate act of navigation. It's a stirring reminder that while we may wander through a shared world, the language we carry can lead us to map it in profoundly different ways. Part 9. The Prism of Language. How Words Shape Our Color Vision. Venture into the realm of color perception through the lens of language and you'll uncover an intriguing phenomenon. The words we wield can subtly influence how we distinguish between the sherbet swirl of hues that paint our world. As we've explored, language not only mirrors, but also might effectively mold the way we engage with the color spectrum. In the mid-1980s, Paul Kay and Willett Kempton delved into this concept by presenting English speakers with color chips gradating from green to blue. Their task, to identify which one deviated from the rest. While English compartmentalizes green and blue into separate categories, the Tarahumara language of Mexico sees them as variegated shades of the same color. The result? English speakers displayed a tendency to accentuate the differences between blue and green, decisively singling out the bluish-green chip, even when the contrast was subtler between greens. Curiously, when probed, English speakers held firm that their chosen chip looked inherently distinct, a testament to the deeply ingrained link between language and visual discrimination. 
But the story doesn't end with hue selection. It spans to the brain's very hemispheres. Fast forward to 2006, and Kay's subsequent experiment places us before a computer screen. An array of color squares borders an X at the center, homogeneous in shade except for one outlier. The task? To pinpoint the odd color out, a task directly affected by the square's location on the screen. When the square sat to the right of the X, hence in the left hemisphere's domain, which governs language, English speakers were quick to discern the outlier, even when the variant was a close kin in the spectrum. This split-second recognition hints at more than just a preference for striking contrast. It suggests that our linguistic categorization of color not only filters through our speech, but also casts its influence on how we process visual information, particularly when that information travels through the neural pathways tangled with our language faculties. Language in this light is far more than a system for communication. It's also a cognitive scaffold that frames our perception, an invisible artist that gently shades our visual experiences, tinging the simplest act of seeing with the subtle hues of the spoken word. Final summary. Our journey through the intricacies of language has brought us to a pivotal understanding. The relationship between the words we use and the culture we inhabit is an intricate, interwoven dance. Language is not merely a reflection of our cultural heritage. It is a powerful force that actively shapes our view of the world. The myriad of ways in which languages frame our perceptions from the naming of colors to the assignment of gender to inanimate objects, underscores the fact that our experience of reality is, to a degree, linguistically constructed. When our vocabulary divides the color spectrum into discrete compartments, it sharpens our ability to distinguish those colors that might otherwise blend into one another. Grammatical nuances, like the gender of nouns, instill in us a subconscious bias that flavors our descriptions and recollections. Moreover, the cardinal directions encoded in some languages orient their speakers to an environmental awareness that transcends personal, egocentric notions of space and place. This diversity in spatial reference exemplifies how language can indeed guide our cognitive processes in profound ways. In essence, the essence of our perceptions, thoughts, and memories is dyed by the linguistic fabric we are wrapped in from birth, while the cultural backdrop informs the language that emerges and evolves within it. That language, in turn, molds our cultural perceptions, ultimately influencing how we interact with the world around us. This fusion of language and culture illuminates a central truth. Our shared reality is filtered through a prismatic array of linguistic lenses, each bending the light of experience to reveal a unique spectrum of understanding. In comprehending this, we gain not only insight into the power of language, but also a deeper appreciation for the diverse ways in which humanity perceives, describes, and navigates the rich tapestry of existence. Thank you for joining me today on this journey of learning and discovery as we explored the insights of another thought-provoking book in our growing library of knowledge. If you've enjoyed our time together, please take a moment to follow our podcast, give us a five-star rating, and share 20-minute books with other knowledge seekers. Your support truly means a lot. 
Don't forget to join me again in the next episode, where we will delve into another enriching book. Until then, happy reading and happy listening.